We didn't come to mess around today. We came to kick the devil out of people's lives, people's hearts, people's minds. And I've got, a, I've got a short word for you, but I believe it's a powerful word. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached this, Matthew chapter 5. If you got your Bibles, go there, Matthew chapter 5. Yeah, we make noise when we open the Word of God. And Jesus preached this sermon because he cared about the people that were in front of him. Jesus gave the most popular, famous message in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. This was the famous message that most scholars believe everywhere he went, he shared the truths from this sermon. We're not going to get into all the chapters today. We're not going to get into every scripture. We're just going to take the first 16 verses, uh, Matthew 5, verse 1 through 16, and we're going to preach through a, a, a section of the sermon called the Beatitudes. Everybody say Beatitudes. I believe this section of scripture is the key to the happiest life you could have. Here's why I believe that. Because Jesus said, happy are those who live this way. Now, he's not talking about superficial happiness. He's not talking about shallow happiness. He's talking about true, sustainable joy. I love how one theologian said it. He said, when we think of happiness, our world defines happiness in a way of like, you got an upgrade on your iPhone. You're happy about it. You got a happy meal at McDonald's. You got chips and queso after church. You're happy about Mexican food. But that's shallow happiness. What Jesus is talking about, and there's nothing wrong with chips and queso, but Jesus has a greater happiness than an iPhone upgrade. This happiness is actually, we would call it joy because we don't know how to separate the two, but this joy is a secret within itself. This joy is serene, it's untouchable, it's self-contained. It is a joy that is completely independent of all the chances and all the changes of life. In other words, this is a joy you can have on Mondays, on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. This is a joy you can have um, when you get demoted, when you get promoted, when you're living in an apartment, when you're living in uh, the nicest house on the street, when you're, living, when you're driving a car that breaks down all the time, when you're driving the nicest car. This is, this is a joy that is separate from the things that happen in your life. This is a joy that's separate from what people do to you. Um, this is a joy that you can have every single day, no matter how you're treated, no matter what kind of... Um, status you have economically, what kind of money you have in your bank account. This is a joy that is untouchable from the chances and the changes of life. How many want that kind of joy in your life? So Jesus promises us this kind of joy in Matthew chapter five. And he says this, it says he sat down on a mountainside um, and his disciples gathered around him. So Jesus, he went out, he went out into the crowd. I'm gonna come out into the crowd. And it says he sat down among them and they, they stood and listened to him. Imagine if I sat down and y'all had to stand for the whole sermon. Y'all like, I'm finding another church where I could sit down. Um, I'm not gonna make you stand up today, but this is what Jesus did. He sat down and he began to teach them. And, and he said, listen, you are blessed when you are poor in spirit. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are poor in spirit. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean blessed are those who are poor in spirit? Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Um, Untouchable joy belongs to those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus mean? He's talking about not, not financial poverty, but spiritual poverty. He says, blessed are you who recognize you are spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. There's a lot of people who are rich in spirit. They're like, I got it all together. I got it all figured out. 
I'm not like the sinners over here, those hypocrites. I'm perfect. Jesus says they're missing out on the kingdom. Blessed are you who realize how wretched you are without the blood of Jesus Christ. Like I'm nothing in my own righteous acts. My righteous acts are filthy rags in God's eyes. Jesus says, blessed are you when you realize how much you need God. How many in this room need God in your life? You're like, uh, you don't want to meet me when, when God's not with me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a bad man. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a nice person when Jesus is not leading me. I need Jesus every day. Jesus gives a story to kind of exemplify this in Luke chapter 18. And I want to just show this to you in verse 9. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone. So Jesus is saying, there's some people in the crowd who think they're really good, who think they've got it all figured out, who think they found the secret of happiness, that it's like them priding themselves and how good they are, how awesome they are, how righteous they are. He says, um, to these people, I've got a story for you. And here's the story. He says, there was two men who went to the temple and they went to go pray. One was a Pharisee, so he's a religious man, and one was a tax collector. Now the Pharisee, he went into the temple and he stood by himself and he prayed. Look at the scripture. He says, Lord, I thank you that I am not like any of the rest of the people in this church. Lord, I thank you I'm better than them. I'm not like the robbers. I'm not like the evildoers. I'm not like the adulterers or even like this tax collector. Jesus is, is really like he's calling some people out here. And, um, and then the other man. Or actually, the, the, the religious man's not done. He says, Lord, I fast twice a week. I tithe a tenth of all that comes to me. And the other man, he goes into the temple and he stands at a distance. And Jesus says he didn't even look up to heaven. Notice that his body language is saying something about who he is. He doesn't even look up. He comes in. He beats his breast and he says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And watch what Jesus says here. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, now hold up, Jesus just took two people. One was perfect in all of his ways, one was imperfect, and he knew it. And Jesus said, one of them walked away justified, the other one didn't. One walked away right with God, the other one didn't. And it's not what you think. The, the Sermon on the Mount turned everything upside down because people had been taught that if you live right, do right, you earn your ticket to heaven, that your good deeds proves that you're worthy. Jesus said, you don't just, like the Sermon on the Mount is not a recipe to get saved. This is not like you don't do good deeds to get, we are saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. No amount of good works gets you into heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. People who've messed up and they know it and they repent and they ask Jesus for his grace and his mercy and they put their faith in Jesus Christ, his crucifixion on the cross, his resurrection from the tomb. That's how we're saved. We are not saved by following a list of do's and don'ts. The do's and don'ts, this, what Jesus is telling us in the Beatitudes is there's a way to live after you're saved. This is for those who've given, who've put their faith in God. Here's what you should live like. Here's what God loves. Here's what is so attractive spiritually. It's when you know you need God. It's when you walk with a humble posture. When you recognize how wretched you are apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. For the people who don't live like that, they're missing out on the kingdom. They can claim to know God, but they're not bearing the fruits that God is looking for. The goal is to be more like Jesus. So we got to look at what Jesus wants. 
We gotta read, what does Jesus want from us? He wants humility. He wants brokenness. He wants poverty in spirit, not poverty financially. You're not blessed if you're broke financially. He's saying you're blessed if you're broke spiritually. If you realize, I need Jesus every single day, every morning, every night. I need Jesus as a parent. I need Jesus as a husband. I need Jesus as a pastor. I need Jesus when I'm uh, all by myself. I need Jesus when I'm around everyone else. I need Jesus when I'm on the highway. I need Jesus in Tulsa when there's slow drivers driving down the street. I need Jesus. I need him so badly. How many of y'all can relate right there? You're like, yep, that's me. That's me. Good news is the kingdom of God is yours. I know I'm being funny, but I'm, I'm, I'm serious. Jesus says to the people who recognize how much they need Jesus, the kingdom of heaven opens up to you. Now, there's a lot of people, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter seven, the same sermon, Matthew seven. He says, don't judge others. So here, here he's talking to the Pharisees. He's saying, listen, you who, who love to judge, don't judge others, or you too will be judged. With the same measure that you judge other people, that you look down on people, you call the, the certain church people hypocrites. I found so many hypocrites around here. It takes one to know one. <laughs> Jesus says, be careful how much you look at everyone else's flaws in the church. How much you look at everyone else's phoniness and fakeness and um, problems and, well, I'm not like them. That family's got a lot of issues or that family, they're so prideful or whatever. Jesus says, don't, don't judge others. You'll be judged with the same measure of judgment you use. And then he says this in verse three, he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that's in your own eye? Now, the irony of this is that the speck of sawdust, Jesus was saying these two things come from the same place. When you're looking at the speck, I'm gonna pull off a little speck. You can't really see it. Can you guys see that? You're like, oh yeah, I can see it. I see my wife's speck. Oh, she's got to change her attitude. And you know what God's doing? He's going, hello, hello. Have you seen the piece of wood that's sticking out of your eyeball right now while you're trying to change your wife's attitude, trying to tell your husband to get his act together? Like you're trying to fix everyone around you and you haven't even looked at the thing that's sticking out of your eyeball. Uh, Sam Grosso, will you stand up here? Sam's our youth pastor, an awesome one too. Will you hold that speck? Um, this works in the workplace too. Um, if you're a coworker, employee, and you, you see some people who are just, they're not doing their job well, and, uh, and you think it's your job to try and fix everyone and uh, change everyone. Again, be careful how much you walk in judging everyone, because Jesus says that judgment's coming back on you. Be careful how much you try to judge everyone in the church, everyone in your workplace, all their problems, or you're watching the news. And you go, oh, I can't believe those parents, they did that. I would never be tempted to bribe my kids into that. I wouldn't, these people need to go to jail for this. And you start jumping on the jail train. You see, these people need to go to prison for this, prison for that. Oh, we need to sue them for this and sue them for that. Be careful how much you jump on the judgment wagon. Because Jesus says there's a big thing sticking out of your eyeball while you're talking about um, the president or the governors or the senators or the people out there that you think need to get their act together. Jesus is saying, hey, 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 the Beatitudes is meant for you first. A sign of spiritual maturity is internal self-reflection becomes the first and foremost biggest mindset and belief when you hear a sermon. Self-reflection. In other words, when I hear a message, a great sermon, my first thought is not, I'm gonna give this CD to some people who need to. 
I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna copy this link and send it to so-and-so who needs to get his act together. I'm thinking, Lord, start with me. I got some issues. I got some areas that you need to work on. Thank you so much, Sam. You can keep that spec. I'm gonna hold on to my plank because I gotta work on this. Somebody say, I gotta work on it. Now, I can't fix the plank in my eye all by myself. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. I need the work of the Spirit of God. And Jesus says, here's how you get it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, when you ask God for help, God shows up. He starts to work in those areas in your life. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn. Now, he's not talking about just crying because you you watched something that made you cry, a good chick flick. He's saying mourning because you're repentant over sins. There's bad mourning and there's good mourning. Turn to the person next to you and say, good morning. Good morning. There's good morning. And the good morning flows from a place of humility, from brokenness, from a place of, Lord, I'm sorry. I remember I did something in high school that I really regretted. And this was the beginning of, of the morning. It started with regret. God doesn't want us to live in regret. Regret is not the key. Remorse is not the key. Repentance is the key. Repentance doesn't leave you in a place of regret. Repentance brings you into a place of feeling confident again in the eyes of God, knowing you're forgiven, you're loved. He washes your slate clean, but it starts with mourning. And so I remember I had done something that I really regretted, and that was in my head. Then the remorse came. That was in my heart. Oh, I feel bad that I did that. I I feel so bad on the inside. But then it led to repentance. I moved from regret, from remorse, to a place of repentance. I went into my room. I didn't even talk to my dad or mom. I just went to go talk to God. And I closed the door, and I just began to cry. I said, God, oh God, I'm sorry. God, I need you. God, please, 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 please forgive me. Lord, I thank you, God, that you cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. And God, you remember it no more. But Lord, I just want you to know against you and you alone have I sinned. And God, I'm asking for your grace. And you know what happened? I remember it was so beautiful. The reason I'm able to share it so vividly is because I remember it so vividly. Just the greatest presence of peace came in the room and grace and forgiveness. God was washing my mind of condemnation, of shame, of guilt. You're like, what did you do? Tell me all your dirty little secrets. None of y'all business. You deal with you. I'll deal with me. God knows. God, God began to wash me and cleanse me, and I walked out of my room with a righteous conscience. You can't have a righteous conscience when you have not repented of sins you know you committed. Well, don't worry. God will get over it. I don't need to talk to God about it. I'm not crying about that. It's not a big deal. God will get over it. Just a little jealousy. It was just a little envy. I just cussed a little bit. I just rebelled a little bit. It wasn't a big deal. It was just a little bit of lust. No, no. We, we need to come back to a place of brokenness for our sins and say, God, I was wrong. I know I don't want to treat this like a little thing. I don't want to brush this off. I don't want to sweep it under the rug. God says, when you do that, you will be comforted by God, comforted by his peace, by his grace, by his presence, by his mercy, by his righteousness. There'll be a sweet intimacy between you and God. And then he goes on to say this. He says, blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. How many of y'all saw the karate kid growing up? Anybody remember the karate kid? You remember when Mr. Miyagi was teaching Daniel's son? Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. 
Or you guys, y'all are thinking about the karate kid that recently came out with Will Smith's boy, right? Jaden Smith. Um, y'all are like, no, I'm thinking about the real karate kid with Daniel's son. <laughs> Whatever karate kid you're thinking of, the bottom line is this. There was a teaching in that movie where it was teaching how to control yourself in a fight that when someone hits you, you don't respond with anger. The greater strength lies in the person who's able to control their, their emotions, their words, their body from retaliating when someone is treating them unfair. Jesus is going to teach us in the, in the Sermon on the Mount um, that when someone slaps you on the cheek, you don't punch them back. One of the greatest images I saw of this played out was in our church when my dad got punched in the face in a church service. How many of y'all were here or remembered on the news? Um, back then, I think it was like, uh, uh, like David Letterman was talking about it on late night, um, showing the clip of Billy Joe Darty coming down to pray for people at the altar, and this man just goes, Phew. and my dad gets punched, and blood starts coming down, and he turns the other face, and the man hits him again, and, and finally, you know, some people got up there and helped him up, and immediately my dad turned it into a sermon of forgiveness and said, we're gonna forgive this man. We love this man. Didn't press charges against him. It was such a beautiful act of forgiveness. You go, that's, that's way too radical. I can't be like that. Jesus says, if you want to be a follower after me, if you've confessed me as Lord and Savior, this is the character I'm looking for, a character of meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is actually strength. Meekness is actually strength because you might be the bigger person. Um, you might be the stronger um, um, spouse. Like maybe as a husband in the room, you're stronger than your wife physically. Or maybe ladies in the room, you're stronger verbally. You have the power to make him feel this small. Like you could retaliate and say some really mean stuff. You got some good stuff packed up in there. You got some heat. You're packing heat with your words. You're like, oh, I could demolish him with this. But you know what meekness is? Meekness is going. I'm sorry. No, 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 Paul. I'm not apologizing. They were the wrong ones. Meekness is taking the path of humility. First Peter chapter five, verse six says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. What does that mean? That means trust God's vengeance. Trust God will vindicate you. If you're in a season right now where you're feeling mistreated, where you're feeling demoted, where people are lying about you, where people are politically maneuvering themselves to the top and going around you and making you look bad, making you feel bad, not including you, humble yourselves before God's mighty hand. In other words, trust that God's going to work it all out for his glory in your life. And at the right time, he will exalt you. For everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the message of the upside down kingdom. It's a radical um, um, difference and contrast from the kingdom of the world because the kingdom of the world says if you want to be big, make yourself known. Make yourself powerful. But Jesus said if you want to be big, be small. If you want to be the leader, be the servant. If you want to go up, go down. This is amazing. He's changing the way things look. He's not saying that Moses' commandments are outdated. He's saying I'm bringing a greater fulfillment to those ten commandments. I'm bringing the beatitudes. This sermon is the way that I want you to live as a believer in Christ. I want you to walk in meekness. I want you to have poor, poor in spirit uh, mindset. I want you to mourn for your sins. And then he says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Turn to the person next and say, you thirsty? You thirsty? There's a lot of people that are thirsty for the pleasures of this life and the pleasures of the world will choke out the thirst for God. The more that I drink from the world, the less thirsty I am for Jesus. 
And the, and the crazy thing is the more I drink of the world, the more emptier I become. Jesus encountered this woman in John chapter four and she had been through five marriages that failed and now she's living with the man that's not her husband. And so she's getting a drink from Jacob's well. That's the name of the well in John chapter four. Jacob's well was built by a man named Jacob during a season in his life where he was very disappointed with life, very disappointed with God, very disappointed with himself. And here she is, she's taking a drink in the New Testament. So this is over a thousand years from, from the Old Testament, from when Jacob was alive. And she encounters Jesus at Jacob's well. Jesus says, will you get me a drink? She says, why are you a Jew talking to me a Samaritan? We don't get along with each other. We're not from the same tribe. She said, you shouldn't ask me for a drink. He said, if you knew who was asking, you would be asking me for a drink. She said, how can you get me something to drink? You have no bucket to draw from the well. He said, the water I give is greater than Jacob's well. She said, how can you say that? Jacob's well is the greatest well that there ever was. And Jesus said, no, there's a well that will never leave you thirsty again. And if you'll drink from me, you'll never thirst again. John chapter six, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I am the living water. Anyone who's weary and tired and exhausted and burned out on trying everything in the world and trying all types of different religions, come to the true living source of water. Come and be filled with God's presence. When we get in God's presence, when we dig into God's word, we are feeding ourselves. It's better than chips and queso. It's better than Mountain Dew. It's better than anything you could drink or try. Hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Imagine if I found a fish living in the water who could talk, and he was complaining to me. I'm sitting on a boat, and he complains to me. He says, I've seen all kinds of boats come by here. Boats with, you know, um, tons and tons of money stacked on the yachts, and, and Tons and tons of Budweiser beer cans. And uh, these guys come by and, and they got their music and they're living high and large and they got ladies all over their boats. And, and the fish says, please, can, can you give me that kind of life? And let's, let's imagine that I pull the fish out of the water and I put him in the nicest mansion and we give this fish boy uh, as many ladies as he wants. <laughs> and we give him tons of beer and we give him tons of money and we give him all the drugs he wants and we give him all the pleasures of the world. What's gonna happen? That fish is gonna be like... <gasps> I need to get back to the water. He wasn't made to live outside the water. And so many Christians are chasing after pleasure and more money. And once I get a bigger house, then I'll finally be satisfied. Once I get a nicer car, once I get married, once I have children, once I finally get the right girl in my life, once I you know, do this, when I get promoted, when I make a million dollars, when I get this, and we're hungering and thirsting for things that don't satisfy. We're like the fish out of water. Nothing's ever going to be. We, you were made for the kingdom of God. You were made for God's kingdom. You were made for God's kingdom. The oxygen you need is the word of God. The water that you need is the presence of Jesus. It's greater than any alcoholic drink you could get. It's greater than any drug you could take. It's great. Listen, I'm not against you having money. God's not against you having money. But when money becomes your chief idle when that's what you're hungry and thirsty for? If I just get more, if I just get more, if I just get more. We need to come back to hungering and thirsting for this. If I could just get more of Jesus. He says, when you're wanting that, you're going to be satisfied. You're going to be blessed. You're going to be happy. You're going to be joyful. And then he goes on to say this, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Now, some people read the Beatitudes 
and they think it's like the nine spiritual gifts, or they think it's like, you know, um, there's nine Beatitudes, so it's kind of like the Enneagram. You know, I'm, I'm an eight, wing seven. Like, I'm mercy with a little bit of peace, but I am definitely not the personality of humility. I'm more like the, and so we pick and choose which ones we want, like a drive-thru. How many have ever taken a strengths finder test, a disc test, Enneagram personality test? Come on, trying to figure out who you are. Some people read the Bible and they're like, um, Jesus has given me nine characteristics to choose from here. Which one is gonna best fit me? That's not the case. Like he wants you to have all nine of them in your life. Well, Paul, my personality is not really mercy. I'm more of a truth person. I don't show mercy to people. Like, God didn't bless me with a personality of mercy. God blessed me to be the prophet, to point everyone else out, to tell everyone else what's wrong with them. And I, I hold them account. I, I punish them for all their flaws. God's saying, you need to grow in your mercy gift. You need to grow in the beatitude of mercy with people. You need to grow in the beatitude of peace with people. You are, you are stirring up so much strife and you're saying that that's your personality, and Jesus is saying, I didn't call you to be a strifeful person. I called you to be a peacemaker. I called you to be a mercy person. I called you to be a person who's poor in spirit, who's humble, who wants more of Jesus. So we can't just pick and choose which ones we like. God wants us to have all of it. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. How many of y'all need mercy in your life? I need, I need mercy. But I'll tell you what, there are some people who test my mercy on the roads, and my children, my five-year-old, <laughs> he will test my patience, and I will sometimes get to that point, and God's saying, show mercy, show mercy. We think punishing people changes behavior, but Jesus says oftentimes it's mercy that will change a person's heart. His mercy leads us to repentance. His kindness draws us to him. If there's someone in your life, what is mercy? The definition of mercy is the ability to forgive someone that you have the power to punish. The ability to practice compassion on someone that you have the power to punish. When it is in your hand, someone did you wrong. They betrayed you. They hurt you. They did something. And you can retaliate. You can hold on to the grudge. Mercy sets you free. It sets us free from bitterness. Mercy sets your future free. I want the keys to come out. I'm almost done. And then he says this, um, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I love looking into the eyes of our, our youngest baby right now, Mac. He's 10 months old, and his eyes are blue and innocent and pure, and he's just this cute little baby. And when I'm looking at him, I'm just looking at a baby who's been untainted by the world. He's been untainted by disappointment, discouragement. He's been fed. He's been taken care of. And I think, you know, God wants us to have that purity in our hearts where we're not cynical about people. We're not cynical about the church or about God. We're not carrying around wounds or we're not walking. Um, Jesus, Jesus doesn't just care about what you do. He cares about how you do it, why you do it. In fact, Jesus is more concerned with who you are than what you do. Most of the time when we meet someone new, our first question is, what do you do? What do you do? Oh, you're a teacher. You're a coach. You're an electrician. You're an engineer. Oh, you're a dentist. Oh, you're going to school. That's what you do. That's what you do. And we immediately think that's who they are. Jesus is concerned with your character, not your competence. He's not looking at how good you can type things and do graphics and uh, develop websites and, you know, be a coach and win championships. He's looking at what kind of person are you on the inside? Because you can do good things from the wrong motivations. I volunteer at the, at the homeless shelter. Paul, I feed the hungry. And I make sure that other Christians see it so they know how righteous I am. 
Jesus teaches on this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't do your good deeds to be seen. In fact, do what you do only for God to see. Bless people that no one else will know about. Don't post it on Instagram. Don't rob yourself of the blessing of a private life lived for Jesus. Don't post about every little righteous act you do on social media. Keep it between you and God. There's rewards in heaven when you do things with the right motivation. When you help people because you know that's what Jesus would do. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. David cried out in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, it's possible to be a follower of God and not live in the light, the kingdom of light. Romans 13, 11 says, it's time that we put aside darkness for the day is coming, the night is almost over. So put aside drunkenness and selfishness and jealousy and every evil motivation in your heart. Come into the light. It's possible to be a believer and still be dealing with some dark things in your heart. Jesus says, come out of that. Come into the Beatitudes. Come into the blessed life. Come into the happiest life ever. Come into the life, the recipe. This is not how to be, this is not how to get saved. This is once you are saved, how to live like Jesus. And it leads to the blessed life. Blessed. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, this verse has been misinterpreted. Some people think that being a peacemaker is to avoid all conflict. When conflict arises, I'm leaving the room. Time will heal all wounds. 20 years goes by and you never dealt with the conflict. God's like, you needed to leave the room to cool down, but you needed to go back into the room to deal with the conflict so you could make peace in that relationship with your family. You don't make peace by avoiding conflict. You make peace by wading into the conflict and saying, let's work this out. If I've wronged you, I'm sorry. If there's anything I've done to cause this offense, please forgive me. I don't want to leave this room until we do what we can to make things right, to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Let's make peace. And maybe you're in the room and you go, Paul, it's hard for me to make peace with people in my family that don't see things the way I see them. You know, we live in a society right now where it's almost becoming ostracizing if you don't see things the way that someone else sees them. Where it's like, we can't even be friends because you voted this way and I voted this way. Because you are like this and I'm like this. And it's like, that's not God's kingdom because one day we're gonna get in heaven and we're gonna be next to people that we didn't always see eye to eye on on every single thing here in America. And yet they're gonna have a house right next to you on heaven's road. And you're like, I can't believe God let him in. No, are you kidding me, God? And, and God's reminding you, God's reminding you, hey, 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 I, I know you're judging him, you're judging her, but you need to put that down. Blessed are the peacemakers. So whoever you're not seeing eye to eye with, do your best to make peace with them. Walk in peace with them. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children. If you came for a hype sermon, I'm sorry. I'm bringing you the word. I'm bringing you truth to table. So if you're bored with the word of God, I apologize. Actually, I don't apologize. This is the greatest thing ever. I will preach this all day, every day. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, some people in the room, <laughs> you got pulled over for speeding. And you got a ticket and you're like, I'm being persecuted so bad right now. I know Jesus can relate. He's like, no, you were speeding. You got a ticket. That's not persecution for righteousness. And the, the company's demoting me because I haven't been showing up on time. So much persecution in this. My Wi-Fi is not working. What? What are you talking about? 
Persecution is when you're living for Jesus and people don't like it and they make fun of you and they mock you. And some of them may even turn their backs on you. You might even be let go from your company because you decided to do the right thing. You walked in integrity. You Other people were doing things that were illegal, that were corrupt, and they wanted you to get in on it. You decided not to because you wanted to walk out the path of Jesus. And because of that, they let you go. They said, you're not, you're not hanging out with us anymore. That's persecution. You know what? Jesus says, rejoice in that. It's precious. It's drawing you closer to Jesus' heart. There's something precious about persecution that nothing else can do. I remember my family every Friday, um, one Friday night a month, we used to go to um, low-income apartment housing right here in Tulsa, and we would do crusade work, and we would do ministry, and just pass out food, and we would do um, a, a children's church tent and an adult service tent. We'd do healing and salvations, and I remember I was working with the kids' tent, and I had my Bible. I had a Bible. It was uh, Salty. How many of y'all remember Salty? This, uh, it was like a little kid character that kids would watch in, in church, children's church, so I'm carrying my Bible. And these kids came up to me and they pushed me down. It was raining that night. I'll never forget. They pushed me down. They took my Bible. They began to rip out pages. And they, they cussed at me. They said, get your blankety blank out of here. We don't want you around here. Um, you're, you're trash. Get out of here. And I didn't have any like thing to say. I was not used to this. So I was like, I didn't have any comeback. I just laid there and started crying, which made me look like a bigger, you know, weakling. But I remember later that night, you know, I was, I was so confused. I was like, Mom, Dad, we're, we're trying to do something good. What did, what did I do wrong? I, I don't know what I did. And, and I remember my dad just sitting with me and, and he said, Paul, this is good. This is good. This is what Jesus was hated oftentimes. He was mocked. He was despised. And anytime you experience any kind of persecution, it's precious to God. Don't run from it. Don't get mad. Don't retaliate. There's something about it that's drawing you closer to the heart of Jesus. And then Jesus goes on to say this, and I'm almost done. He says, when you are persecuted for all these things, when people insult you, when they make up statements against you, some of you have been falsely accused of things you didn't do. And Jesus says, that happened to me too. And you don't have to get revenge. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Pray for those who persecute you. In fact, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't just love those who love you, love those who hate you. If someone takes your coat, give them your shirt too. If they ask you to go a mile, go two miles. Pray for those who persecute you. And then he says this, you're the salt of the earth. Turn to the person next to you and say, stay salty. Stay salty. You're the salt of the earth. You're here to bring seasoning to a world that has lost its flavor. A world that is dark, that's twisted, that's corrupt. A world that's full of sin, that's full of divisiveness, that's full of anger and hatred and murderous spirits. And we see things on the news like what happened in New Zealand this last week. 50 people killed, murdered. And a person saying that he was doing the right thing, it's, it's wrong, it's evil, it's wicked. Jesus says, I've got you right where I want you. You're the salt of the earth. Don't jump on social media and stir up more anger and hate and violence. Pray for those who persecute you. Minister to those in your workplace that are hurting, that are broken. You're the light of the world, he says. And a city on a hill is not to be hidden. Neither does someone light a lamp and put it underneath a covering. He says, no, I've put you out there. You can't just shine in a church full of lights, right? This is not where we shine because there's so many lights here. Turn the lights off. Jesus wants you to go into the dark 
corners of the earth. He wants you to be a light in your part of Tulsa, in your campus, in your school, with your family, with your friends, at your workplace. Jesus says, bring the light. How do I bring the light? I live out the Beatitudes. I walk in peace. I walk in kindness. I walk in humility. I walk in mercy. I talk about Jesus. I show them what Jesus looks like. I reflect the nature of Jesus with my lifestyle, not just my words. It's lifestyle Christianity that he wants us to exude. He wants us to show people the kindness of Jesus. And when you're shining your light, Jesus is glorified. He said, when they see your light, your good deeds, they will glorify your Father in heaven. I want you to stand your feet all over this place, church. And that was just the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has so much more to say on this, but today we'll wrap it up with that. I dare you this week to be the light. You don't have to go to Dominican Republic to be a light, although we are sending 150 people there. You don't have to go to Guatemala to be the light, although we're sending 40 plus people there. You can go right in the backyard of this church. You can go all over this city this week. There's people who need hope. There's people who need healing. There's people who need grace. There's people who need peace. They need an invitation to know Jesus. Who could you invite to church next week? Who could you pray for this week? Who could you wake up on Monday and say, God, use me to be a light today at my workplace. Use me to bring salt to a place that's lost its flavor. Lord, use me to bring hope. Use me, God, to cut down conversations that are strifeful and to bring peace in relationships. You know, I wanna just end with this right here, and that is, I, I heard this story about a man who passed away last year in Australia. He was in his 80s. He lived on a cliff in Australia known as the Gap, and, and it is a notorious place where many people commit suicide. And an article was posted when he passed that during his lifetime, he lived next to this cliff for 40 years. He would walk out of his house every morning, every night, and he would try to talk people out of jumping. And the way he would talk them out of is he would say, would you come in my house and have a cup of tea? Let's talk. And during his 40 years of living there, he talked 500 people out of suicide. He saved 500 people's lives. His name is Don Ritchie. You can look up the story. It's an incredible story. There's a picture of him holding a woman from her. She was about to jump off the ledge. What did Don Ritchie know? He knew, I am a light. I am a light. This might be the worst real estate in all of Australia, but for me, it is the very location that God placed me to be a light, to bring hope, to bring healing, to rescue those that are around me.